Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon. When you were a student, did you find any joy in the writing tasks required of you? When you read poetry, do you question why the poet shares personal insights? Today's episode includes various poems about writing. Two are about personal essay writing, and two about writing poetry. All of today's poems share in common this principle. Much of the writing we do requires self-disclosure, sometimes to an uncomfortable degree. Probing who we are and why we think the way we do does not come easily for most of us. And we write with some awareness of our audience. What effect do we want to create in their minds? Langston Hughes' poem, Theme for English B, that's the letter B, published in 1950, presents the situation of a student who responds to an assignment from his instructor at Columbia University, a college on the hill above Harlem, as the poem says. We might presume the poem is partially autobiographical. The instructions for this assignment, stated at the top of the poem, sound vague to me, way too open-ended. Go home and write a page tonight, and let that page come out of you. Then it will be true. Ah, if only it were that easy to write what is true. Let's hear the poem and then I'll offer some brief commentary. This is Langston Hughes' Theme for English B. The instructor said, Go home and write a page tonight, and let that page come out of you. Then it will be true. I wonder if it's that simple. I am 22, colored, born in Winston-Salem. I went to school there, then Durham, then here to this college on the hill above Harlem. I am the only colored student in my class. The steps from the hill lead down into Harlem, through a park. Then I cross St. Nicholas, 8th Avenue, 7th, and I come to the Y, the Harlem Branch Y, where I take the elevator up to my room sit down and write this page. It's not easy to know what is true for you or me at 22, my age. But I guess I'm what I feel and see and hear. Harlem, I hear you. Hear you, hear me. We too, you, me, talk on this page. I hear New York too. Me, who? Well, I like to eat, sleep, drink, and be in love. I like to work, read, learn, and understand life. I like a pipe for a Christmas present, or records, Bessie, Bop, or Bach. I guess being colored doesn't make me not like the same things other folks like who are other races. So will my page be colored that I write? 
being me, it will not be white, but it will be a part of you, instructor. You are white, yet a part of me, as I am a part of you. That's American. Sometimes, perhaps, you don't want to be a part of me, nor do I often want to be a part of you. But we are. That's true. As I learn from you, I guess you learn from me, although you're older and white and somewhat more free. This is my page for English B. That's Langston Hughes' poem theme for English B. I suppose that if I were this man's instructor, I'd find this response a bit cheeky. But then again, the student plays a bit with this touchy-feely assignment. Let that page come out of you, then it will be true. The speaker tells us he was born in Winston-Salem and attended school there as a child. He did not stick around in his home state to go to college. The University of North Carolina did not admit black students until 1955, five years after this poem was published. Did he leave North Carolina because he could not continue to study at their state colleges? Why did he move to Harlem? We do know he enjoys a range of music, the blues singer Bessie Smith, Bop and Bach. We might want to know more about what it's like to be the only black student in his English class, or what he most appreciates about living at the Harlem Y. Twice he tells us he's 22. He's very alert to his immediate audience. He addresses his instructor directly. You are white, yet a part of me, as I am a part of you. That's American. This speaker recognizes his identity is fluid, a mature insight for one so young. He's willing to absorb some of the instructor's sensibility, and he presumes his instructor absorbs some of his identity as the only black student in the class. He acknowledges this might not be a comfortable sharing. The poem says, Sometimes, perhaps, you don't want to be a part of me, nor do I often want to be a part of you. But we are. That's true. This is a 41-line poem, and the final line stands alone. This is my page for English B. I'm not sure if he's expressing relief in completing the assignment or cockiness in what he thinks is the quality of his effort. Naomi Shehab Nye focuses on a writer who is 21, just a year younger than Langston Hughes' speaker, in her poem, Mountains. 
I'll get to that poem in a couple of minutes. Naomi Shihab Nye, a poet whose works I've relied on for a number of episodes of Poems for Company, and she also wrote a four-line poem with the title, Please Describe How You Became a Writer. I imagine this might be something she had been asked many times by young students whose classrooms she visited. She approaches the topic from an off angle and answers the implied question with questions of her own. This is Naomi Shehab Nye's four-line poem, Please Describe How You Became a Writer. Possibly, I began writing as a refuge from our insulting first-grade textbook. Come, Jane, come. Look, Dick, look. Were there ever duller people in the world? Yet to tell them to look at things? Why weren't they looking to begin with? That's Naomi Shehab Nye's Please Describe How You Became a Writer. She throws down the gauntlet to the students she addresses with this poem. You're not as boring, as limited as Dick and Jane. Prove it through your writing. Her poem, titled Mountains, depicts a 21-year-old man who by chance runs into his former writing teacher from years earlier, presumably Naomi Shehab Nye herself. He met his teacher, in fact, when he was merely six, when he was primed to move out of the Dick and Jane phase. Now at 21, this young man is burdened with adult responsibilities and wonders how he might recover his happier self. He had been a creative six-year-old. The teacher encourages this 21-year-old, try to recapture the wide-awake perspective you enjoyed all those years ago. Despite the young man's multiple jobs and family responsibilities, the teacher declares there are steps he can take starting now. This is Naomi Shehab Nye's poem, Mountains. Jesse never felt smarter than at age six, the only first grader in a fifth grade poetry workshop. When they wrote about their neighborhood, his poem, by far the best in the room, and he, the first volunteer to stand and read it. The big kids clapped for him and cheered. He remembered this at 21 when we crossed paths on Commerce Street. Hey, hey, could I ever feel like that again? It was my best day. Now working two jobs, two kids to support. Yes, I think so. Do you read to your kids? Do you have a library card? Do you use it? No, no. No. Start there, Jesse. You knew the truth when you were six, that your street was magical and full of mountains. 
though it was utterly flat. You wrote about the rooster's songs and the dog's barking full wonder. You wrote, Who do you think I am? Am, am. And I knew instinctively it was more powerful to say am three times than one. You are still that person. That's Naomi Shehab Nye's poem, Mountains. What a pep talk this teacher provides. Read to your kids, Jesse. Make use of our local library. That open way you embraced the world when you were six, when you knew your street was magical and full of mountains, though it was utterly flat, is still available for you personally and for you to provide to your kids. This 21-year-old man is urged to recover the open-hearted outlook he expressed as a child. Our next poem takes us out of the classroom and into the office of a remedial writing teacher, or, as the poem says, a teacher of bonehead English. Robert Wrigley, in his poem, Careers, depicts a speaker, a teacher, who conducts one-on-one conferences with a couple of his students, including a young woman who pushes boundaries with her essay. Another student is a severely injured logger who relies on an amanuensis, that is, someone who transcribes the injured logger's assigned essays, or, as the poem says, the hired scribe. There's a quick reference to a third student, a baseball player. Early in the poem, the speaker identifies the dreaded process paper assignment, that is, a writing task where the students must explain how to do something, how to carry out a process. This is Robert Wrigley's poem, Careers. Not a bonehead, though, yes, we called the class she was enrolled in that, those of us who taught such classes, believing that mucking among the illiterates was beneath us. We were meant for finer things, the joys of illusion and figure, the lushness that is literature. And yet, for this assignment, the dreaded process paper, for which I had encouraged them to consider nothing too mundane or daily, she had written, in contrast to her dreary colleagues, the changers of oil and bakers of cookies, a paper that step-by-step described in impressive and vastly appealing detail her morning shower. She was not guileless either. She knew I could not, as I confronted each paragraph's sequential topic sentence, not imagine her there. First her hair, then her face, then her body, 
from her arms and shoulders to her waist, and from her feet back up to what she called, most fetchingly, her possibles, which by such mention she must have known those two I could not possibly help but imagine. She finished by shaving her underarms and her legs, wrapping a towel around her, and combing out her hair. Oh, let us learn, I thought to myself that day, humility, and all the humble pitfalls and perils of language and instruction. If there were a career in bathing and reporting the processes thereof, she was home free. And there were jobs, I did not doubt, that her paper, offered as a letter of application, might well land her. If only she sat across the desk from someone not at all like me and beamed the way she did, mostly in pride. I struck three semicolons, one of them used correctly but pointlessly. She leaned in very close. She was not pleased with her A minus, but honestly thrilled. I realized I was hardly older than she was, but at the weekly meeting with my own colleagues, I did not speak of her at all, nor of the ball player who threatened to break my nose if he did not pass, nor of the tree-crushed, almost quadriplegic former logger whose papers were transcribed by an amanuensis of nearly intolerable linguistic ignorance. This would be my life for some years. It was a way to live. The girl aimed to be a nurse and marry a doctor. The ball player went to the bigs and became a millionaire. The hired scribe left the logger in his motor-driven wheelchair on a dock by the river to fish. And somehow the motor joystick was nudged just enough so that he tumbled in and drowned. The scribe from the Office of Occupational Rehabilitation in an act supremely needless and disarming brought the logger's final paper to me and wept in my office like a baby. That's Robert Wrigley's poem, Careers. This is a poem that could give a reader a bit of whiplash. It starts out so prurient as the male instructor meets with his female student whose process essay imaginatively takes him into the shower with her. And certainly, I'll never think of the word possibles again without recalling the student's creative use of the term. She was not guileless either, the speaker declares. She's not naive. She knows her teacher will be challenged to treat this essay as merely words on a page. 
if there were a career in bathing and reporting the processes thereof, she was home free. This young woman may have intended to seduce him through her language. The detailed account of her essay in meeting her teacher in his office is followed with a quick mention of the entitled ball player. He threatens this teacher, just the opposite of the young woman's sly strategy. Then the poem shifts to the almost quadriplegic former logger and the scribe who accompanies him. Curiously, there is no focus on this injured former logger's essay. Instead, the speaker expresses frustration with the scribe's nearly intolerable linguistic ignorance. Yet, the poem does not conclude with any disdain for this student and his helper. In a kind of epilogue, the poem's final stanza notes that the young woman aimed to be a nurse and marry a doctor. The belligerent ball player went to the bigs and became a millionaire. Then the poem closes with startling emotions. These are the final eight lines. The hired scribe left the logger in his motor-driven wheelchair on a dock by the river to fish. And somehow, the motor joystick was nudged just enough so that he tumbled in and drowned. The scribe, from the Office of Occupational Rehabilitation, in an act supremely needless and disarming, brought the logger's final paper to me and wept in my office like a baby. Both Langston Hughes and Robert Wrigley deal with students addressing their essay writing assignments. William Matthews' poem, a poetry reading at West Point, shifts the perspective. Here, the speaker, a poet, presumably Matthews himself, addresses students who have been assigned one of his volumes of poems. Many students would be excited if the author of an assigned work visited their classroom. Matthew's speaker engages in a Q&A period with these students at West Point, of all places, an institution where we may not have thought poetry would be required. The poem opens with a description of the setting, back-to-back readings to a hall full of uniformed cadets. The poem then proceeds with a question posed by a remarkably polite and befuddled cadet and follows with three stanzas in which Matthews concisely explains why he writes the way he does. This is William Matthews' poem, A Poetry Reading at West Point. I read to the entire plebe class in two batches, twice the hall filled with bodies dressed alike, each toting a copy of my book. What would my shrink say, if I had one, 
about such a dream, if it were a dream. Question and answer time. Sir, a cadet yelled from the balcony and gave his name and rank and then closing his parentheses yelled, Sir, again. Why do your poems give me a headache when I try to understand them? He asked. Do you want that? I have a gift for gentle jokes to diffuse tension, but this was not the time to use it. I try to write as well as I can what it feels like to be human, I started, picking my way carefully, for he and I were, after all, pained by the same dumb longings. I try to say what I don't know how to say, but of course I can't get much of it down at all. By now I was sweating bullets. I don't want my poems to be hard unless the truth is, if there is a truth. Silence hung in the hall like a heavy fabric. My own head ached. Sir, he yelled. Thank you, sir. That's William Matthews, a poetry reading at West Point. Like any fine poet, Matthews suggests various concerns without precisely defining them. For example, what might a shrink say about a dream in which a writer faces back-to-back -back audiences dressed exactly the same and all of them clutching a copy of the writer's book? It would not necessarily be a nightmare, but it does sound surreal. A different poet might have swerved into a humorous direction if an audience member asked if he intended to provoke headaches in his readers. Matthews avoids that. He tries to explain his intentions as a poet without talking down to his audience of cadets or the rest of his readers. He recognizes we're all pained by the same dumb longings. And this cadet may be voicing a struggle over interpretation that many of his fellow cadets share. He may be looking for a shortcut to interpretation. Matthew's reply to this large room full of cadets avoids sounding condescending. I try to say what I don't know how to say, but of course I can't get much of it down at all. And he continues, I don't want my poems to be hard unless the truth is, if there is a truth. You will hear other poems by William Matthews on Poems for Company, and I assure you, they won't give you a headache. William Matthews, Naomi Shiab Nye, and Robert Wrigley all have written many volumes of excellent poems, and their work is featured on multiple episodes of Poems for Company. And you may listen to other episodes of the show whenever you like, at any time of the day or night. Go to kmun.org, click on the podcast tab, and then click on Poems for Company. There you will also find a credit list of all poems read on the show. Our theme music is Philip Auberg's Going to the Sun from his CD Live from Montana, available at sweetgrassmusic.com. Finally, 
I must acknowledge KMUN's generous members who pledge their support for their community station in our just-concluded pledge drive. KMUN is now moving into its fifth decade of broadcasting music shows, news shows, and shows that deal with a variety of community, cultural, and specifically literary concerns, including Poems for Company. Thank you for contributing, and thank you for listening.